Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devi Kagirish, and I'm the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This year, at the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland, I participated in a fascinating experimental event called A Long Night of Dreaming About the Future of Intelligence. Curated by Rafael Dernbach, a researcher at the Università della Svizzera Italiana, the event was as strange and wonderful as the title suggests. Beginning at sunset on August 9th and ending at sunrise on August 10th, the program involved a series of talks and workshops that invited guests and attendees to ponder what intelligence means, how artificial intelligence is changing our relationships to ourselves and the world, and how dreams may offer up keys to our future. I was one of the hosts of this event, and today, we're sharing an excerpt from my moderating shift, featuring a lecture and Q&A with Shane Denson, a scholar at Stanford University who explores the terrain of post-cinema, the brave new world of digital images untethered to classical notions of time, space, and reality. Check back next week for another excerpt from A Long Night of Dreaming About the Future of Intelligence featuring AI scholar Andrea Rizzoli and critic Kevin Bealy. Thanks to all of you for coming tonight. I'm excited to be here at this twilight hour in this in-between space between day and night, like some hypnagogic state between walking existence and a sleep of dreams. So for over a century, this liminal space of twilight has, of course, been central to thinking and theorizing the cinema and its shadowy realm of dreams. But I think it can equally be useful for thinking about the media transitions that we're experiencing today towards what I and others have called post-cinematic media, which you just heard a little bit about. Um, In the context of a film festival, the very occurrence of which testifies to the continued persistence and uh, liveliness of the cinema. I should clarify that post-cinema, as I use the term, is not meant to suggest that cinema is over or dead. Far from it. Rather, the post in post-cinema points to a kind of futurity that is integrated into while also transforming and pointing beyond what we have traditionally known as the cinema. That is, a shift is taking place from cinema's traditional modes of recording and reproducing the past, reproducing past events, to a new mode of predicting, anticipating, and shaping mediated futures. Something that we see in everything from autocorrect on our phones to the use of AI to generate trippy hypnagogic spectacles. So tonight, I hope to use this twilight time to prime us all for a long night of dreaming and thinking 
maybe even hallucinating about the future of intelligence. The act of priming is an act that sets the stage and prepares for a future operation. In English, we talk about priming water pumps, for example, removing air from the line to ensure adequate suction and thus delivery of water from a well. We also speak of priming engines, distributing oil throughout the system to avoid damage on initial startup of our car or whatever engine we're talking about. But interestingly, when we move from mechanical, hydraulic, and thermodynamic systems to, to cybernetic and more broadly informatic ones, this notion of priming tends to be replaced by the concept of training, as we say of AI models. Large language models like ChatGPT are not primed, but instead trained. The implication seems to be that dumb mechanical systems are merely primed, prepared for operations that are guided or supervised by human users, while AI models need to be trained, perhaps even educated, for an operation that's largely autonomous and intelligent. But let's not forget that artificial intelligence was something of a marketing term proposed in the 1950s as an alternative to and in order to compete with the dominance of cybernetics. Clearly, AI won that competition, and so while we still speak of computer engineers, we don't speak of computer engines in need of priming, but AI models in need of training. In the following, I want to take a step back from this language and the way of thinking that it primes us for because it encodes also a specific way of imagining the future and the future of intelligence in particular that I think is still up for grabs, suspended in a sort of liminal twilight state. My point is not that these technologies are neutral or that they might turn out not to affect human intelligence and agency. Rather, I'm confident in saying that the future of intelligence will be significantly different from intelligence's past. There will be some sort of redistribution, at least, if not a major transformation in the intellective powers that exist and are exercised in the world. I'm reminded of Plato's Phaedrus, in which Socrates recounts the mythical origins of writing and the debate that it engendered. Would this new inscription technology extend human memory by externalizing it and making it durable? Or would it endanger memory by the same mechanisms? If people could write things down so the worry went, they wouldn't need to remember them anymore, and the exercise of active conscious memory would suffer as a result. Certainly, the advent of writing was a watershed moment in the history of human intelligence, and perhaps the advent of AI will be regarded similarly. This remains to be seen. In any case, we see the same polarizing tendencies. Some think that AI will radically expand our powers of intelligence, while others worry that it will displace or eclipse our powers of reason. So there's a similar ambivalence, but we shouldn't overlook a major difference, which is one of temporality. And this brings us, brings us back to the question of post-cinema. Plato's question concerned memory and memorial technologies which includes writing as well as later photography, phonography, and cinema. 
But if we ask the question of intelligence's future today, it's complicated by the way that futurity itself is centrally at stake now. First, complicated by the predictive algorithms and future-oriented technologies of artificial intelligence, and second, by the potential foreclosure of the future altogether via climate catastrophe, possible extinction, or worse, all of which is inextricably tied up with the technological developments that have led from hydraulic to thermodynamic to informatic systems. To ask about the future of intelligence is therefore to ask about both the futurity of intelligence as well as its environmentality, dimensions that I have sought to think together under the concept of post-cinema. In my book, Discorrelated Images, I assert that the nature of digital images does not correspond to the phenomenological assumptions on which classical film theory was built. While film theory is based on past film techniques that rely on human perception to relate frames across time, computer-generated images use information to render images as moving themselves. Consequently, cinema studies and new media theory are no longer separable, and the aesthetic and epistemological consequences of shifts in technology must be accounted for in film theory and cinema studies more broadly as computer-generated images are now able to exceed our perceptual grasp. I introduced discorrelation as a conceptual tool for understanding not only the historical, but also the technological specificity of how films are actively and affectively perceived as computer-generated images. This is a kind of hyper-informatic cinema, which figures in with figures intended to overload and, are, and exceed our perceptual grasp, enabled by algorithmic processing. In the final chapter of the book, I consider how these computer-generated images have exceeded spectacle and are arguably not for human perception at all, thus serving as harbingers of human extinction and the end of the environment as defined by human habitation. At least, that's what you'll read about my book if you search for it on Google Books. Note that this is not the summary, the one that I just read to you, not the summary provided by my publisher, even though that's what Google claims. I strongly suspect that a computer and not a human wrote this summary, as the text kind of makes sense and kind of doesn't. I do indeed argue that computer-generated images exceed our perceptual grasp, in certain respects at least, that their real-time algorithmic rendering and futural or predictive dimensions put them, at least partially, outside of conscious awareness and turn them into potent vectors of subjectivation and environmental change. But I honestly don't know what it means to say that computer-generated images, quoting here from that summary, that computer-generated images use information to render images as moving themselves. The repetition of the word images makes this sentence confusing, and the final words are ambiguous. Are these supposed to be self-moving images, or images that themselves are moving? Or do the images use information to render themselves as moving images? What would that mean? The images are self-rendering? What I'm pointing to is a multi-layered problem of intelligibility, 
that's involved here, despite the fact that the sentences that I read to you are more or less grammatical. The semantic ambiguities, the strange repetitions, and the feeling that something is just a little off are telltale signs of AI-generated text. This is not full-blown hallucination, as they say when AI just makes things up, but instead a kind of twilight recursion suspended between the past of the training data and the future of the predictive algorithm, generating a sleepy hyp hypnagogic loop or a quasi-lucid semi-waking dream. But that summary was generated back in 2020. Since then, with GPT and other tools proliferating, we've witnessed a quantum leap in the intelligibility of AI-generated texts. In preparation for this event, I asked ChatGPT to summarize several of my books and to explain key concepts and arguments that I made in them. The results were much better than what I just discussed, even though I was using just the basic version that runs GPT 3.5, not the more advanced uh, GPT-4. So asked to explain my theory that, and I'm not going to explain it beyond what, what the computer says here, but asked to explain my theory that media are the originary correlators of experience, the algorithm responded, in this context, originary suggests that media have been present from the beginning of human existence and have continuously evolved alongside our species. They are ingrained in our social and cultural development and have become integral to how we make sense of the world. Whether it's language, art, writing, photography, film, or digital technology, each medium influences and organizes our experiences, constructing the framework through which we navigate reality. I mean, that's not bad, really. And it gets at what I'm calling the environmentality of media, including the medium or milieu of intelligence. We could say then that artificial intelligence technology functions as a contemporary manifestation of the correlation between media and human experience. ChatGPT represents a significant leap in the relationship between humans and technology in the digital age. As a sophisticated language model, it mediates human interaction with information, communication, and even decision-making processes. ChatGPT is an intermediary that transforms the way we engage with knowledge and ideas, redefining the boundaries between human and machine. As an AI language model, ChatGPT embodies the fusion of the organic human intelligence and the artificial machine intelligence. This fusion blurs the lines between human creativity and algorithmic generation, questioning traditional notions of authorship and creativity. The only problem, though, is that everything I've just said about ChatGPT was written by ChatGPT, which I asked to speculate on the basis of my books about what I would say about large language model AIs. The impersonation is competent and even clarifying as it brings out implications of my previous thinking in transferring them to the new case. I won't say that it actually represents what I do think, but in any case. Significantly, it points the way out of the impasse I described earlier with reference to Plato's Phaedrus. AI will neither simply empower nor simply imperil human intelligence, but will fundamentally alter it by transforming the parameters or environment of its operation. And it's here the environment that I really want to focus on.
The fact that ChatGPT could write this text and that I could speak it aloud without any noticeable change in my voice, style, or even logical commitments offers a, offers a perfect example of the aforementioned leap in the intelligibility of AI-generated contents. Intelligibility is, of course, not the same as intelligence, but neither is it easily separated from the latter. Nevertheless, or as a result, I want to suggest that perhaps the future of intelligence depends on the survival of intelligibility, or sorry, unintelligibility. <laughs> we need unintelligibility. This can be taken in several ways. Generally, noise is a necessary condition, substrate, or environment for the construction of signals, messages, or meanings. Without the background of unintelligible noise, meaningful figures could hardly stand out as, well, meaningful. In the face of the increasingly pervasive and increasingly intelligible AI-generated text circulating on the internet and beyond, Matthew Kirschenbaum speaks of a coming textpocalypse, as he calls it, quoting here, a tsunami of text swept into a self-perpetuating cataract of content that makes it functionally impossible to reliably communicate in any digital setting. Kirschenbaum observes further, it's easy now to imagine a setup wherein machines could prompt other machines to put out text ad infinitum ad infinitum, flooding the internet with synthetic text devoid of human agency or intent, gray goo, but for the written word. Universal intelligibility, in effect, threatens intelligence, for if all text or other media becomes intelligible, how can we intelligently discriminate, or how can we cultivate intelligence? Cultivating intelligence in such an environment requires exposure to the unintelligible, that which resists intellective parsing. For example, glitches, errors, and aesthetic deformations that both expose the computational infrastructures and emphasize our own situated embodied processing. Such embodied processing precedes and resists capture by higher order cognition. The body is not dumb, it has its own sort of intelligence, which is modifi modified by way of interfacing with computation and its own sub-intellective processes. In this interface, a microtemporal collision takes place that, for better or for worse, transforms us and our powers of intelligence. If I emphasize the necessary role of unintelligibility, this is not just about protecting ourselves from being duped and dumbed by all too intelligible deep fakes or the textpocalypse, for example. It's also about recognizing and caring for the grounds of intelligence itself, both now and in the future. And here's where art comes in. Some of the most intelligent contemporary AI-powered or algorithmic art actively resists easy and uncomplicated intelligibility, instead foregrounding unintelligibility as a necessary substrate or condition of possibility. Remix artist Mark America's playful and philosophical use of GPT for self-exploration, or maybe even critique in a Kantian sense, is a good example. In his book, My Life as an Artificial Creative Intelligence, uh, co-authored with GPT-2, and in the larger project of which it's a part, language operates beyond intention 
as the algorithm learns from the artist and the artist from the algorithm, increasingly blurring the lines that nevertheless reveal themselves as sort of seamful cracks in digital systems and human subjectivities alike. The self-deconstructive performance reveals the machinic substrate even of human meaning. In her forthcoming book, Malicious Deceivers, theater and performance scholar Joanna Yukon offers another example, focusing on the question of intelligibility in Annie Dorson's algorithmic theater. For example, Dorson's play, A Piece of Work from 2013, uses Markov chains and other algorithms to perform real-time uh, analyses and syntheses, really, but analyses of Shakespeare's Hamlet and generate a new play different in each performance in which human and machinic actors interface on stage, often getting caught in unintelligible loops that disrupt conventions of theatrical and psychological or semantic coherence alike. Moreover, a wide range of AI-generated visual art foregrounds embodied encounters that point to the limits of intellect as the ground of intelligence. Artists like Refik Anadol channel the sublime as a pre- or post-intellective mode of, of aesthetic encounter with algorithms. Uh, Ian Chang uses AI to create self-playing video, video game scenarios that, because they offer no point of interface, leave the viewer feeling sidelined and disoriented. And John Raffman channels cringe and the uncomfortable underbellies of online life using diffusion models like Midjourney and Dolly 2 to illustrate weird copypasta tales from the internet that point us toward a visual equivalent of the gray goo that Kirschenbaum identifies with the textpocalypse. These examples are wildly divergent in their aesthetic and political concerns, but they're all united, I contend, in a shared understanding of environmentality and noise as a condition of perceptual engagement. They offer important challenges to intelligibility that might help us to navigate the future of intelligence. So finally, I'd like to end with a work that I think is appropriate to the twilight hour, which is almost dark now. Yvette Granada's The Endless from 2022 deepens our understanding of these new aesthetic and, and environmental entanglements through a meditative but somewhat unsettling encounter restaging the post-symbolic interface between human and machinic filtering via the noisy relations of a seemingly post-human environment. The piece opens with a close-up view of a, of a camouflage green mask, waves lapping gently around it. Another view reveals its position at the edge of a shore, along with the fact that the mask is adorned with horns. Another such mask is perched atop a pole, its empty eyes set against the clouds moving slowly in the distance, the hilly shoreline descending sharply to the water on either side. A weathered 55-gallon drum punctuated with a bright red screw cap, uh, bright red screw cap, lies languidly on its side, sunken amidst foliage. Sounds of water and buzzing insects fill out the strange, seemingly desolate environment. 
The computer-generated uh, graphics, the pixelation and iteration of organic objects, and the evident polygons that approximate circular and other smooth forms, all of these suggest that this environment is that of a video game. But unlike Chang's non-interactive video games, which retain the operational framing of a game while withholding any operational interface, Granada's The Endless strings together its views through quasi-cinematic cuts, however erratic they may be. Thus, while the shots are not obviously motivated, motivated by the perspectives of diegetic characters, it's clear that their framing and sequencing are deliberate. They position us in relation to objects which evidence deliberate design, but whose meaning or utility is altogether inscrutable. We peer upwards towards a giant chimeric statue, a muscular primate body crowned by a vaguely reptilian or perhaps canine or even ursine head full of sharp, exposed teeth. Outsized human hands extend outward from the stone behind the reclining figure, the leaves on the trees swaying gently in the wind behind the motionless statue further compound a feeling of desolation, as do the following shots of inexplicable pink electrical activity, an abandoned car with its wipers still on, repetitively and mechanically cycling, and ancient gas pumps floating mysteriously through the air. Not quite sublime, this is a surreal and uncanny encounter with AI, by way of what might be described as an ecological transduction. That is, the non-interactive environmentality of the piece speaks to a transformation, not just of human subjects or of technological objects, but of their co-constitutive relationality itself. For it's precisely this relationality that's at stake in the opening of embodied aesthesis to AI's artificial, tactile, specular filtering operations. The recursive or transductive relation between the powers of interiorization and exteriorization, between feeling and seeing, is open to transformation with uncertain because wholly non-conscious effects. Granada's audiovisual environment intimates something of these changes in the ways that it calls technological utility and aesthetic form radically into question through a recursive unsettling of human and non-human agencies. An official description of the project reads, and there's a little bit of a long quote here, The Endless is a speculative sensory ethnography film that observes AI models in the act of interpreting humans and vice versa. Alien landscapes and 3D models are constructed through the eyes of a machine that roams through a visual thought pattern. The film excavates the visual artifacts of interpolation of AI, the act of neural nets filling in missing visual information with surrounding environmental data. Simultaneously, it seemingly produces a new type of or an alien form of human culture. The 3D models and objects throughout the film were produced from a series of artistic experiments with AI neural networks and recognition bias from 2018 to 2022. The film explores the digital terrain as if filming a fly on the wall encounter with an unknown world. In this way, the endless is a recursive loop between humans interpreting AI generated images and vice versa. The result is a digital sensory journey through an alien culture in a phantasmagoric landscape. 
In what looks like a post-climate collapse scenario, human artifacts like the abandoned car no longer have obvious utility. But the absence of human observers cannot strip masks and statues, or even cars, now strangely iridescent due to environmental reactions, wholly of their aesthetic qualities. In question is therefore not whether art and techniques persist, but of their relations to one another in the wake of the encounter with AI. In Granada's envisioning of the scenario, the laws of physics themselves are out of whack, as, as evidenced by the floating gas pumps, pointing to the deep transformative effects of recursive filtering or the human encounter with AI's artificial metabolism of objects and environments. In personal communication, Granada explains that she used, quote, an early version of an image generator to interpret images of 3D extractions of my face and had the AI generate new images, which is now really common with the Dolly stuff and mid-journey, but then humans made 3D models interpreting the AI images. In the completed work, we see effects of this back and forth in the way that human actions persist even beyond their humanly defined significance. Humanoid figures repetitively iterate motion, bodily motions. One of them seems to be mopping a floor, but its empty hands hold no mop. Another bangs its fist pointlessly against the base of the statue a short distance away from some reptilian and insectoid corpses left abandoned on a medical examination bed. Hybrid objects like the chimeric statue mix human and animal forms and fuse parts at varying scales, much like today's image generators. Meanwhile, technical infrastructures exhibit purpose, but not meaning or reason. An aerial view shows water being drained from one zone, left brown and decaying and transported to another, now lush and green. The landscape is littered with strange contraptions, while living creatures move rhythmically, mimicking the, mu the movement of the computer-simulated natural elements. On the screen of a laptop left open on a table, we see an environment more or less identical to the one we see before us, but overlaid with glitchy scan lines. Cut to a group of metallic-headed figures swaying rhythmically beneath water raining down from above, and now a radically different scene. A human man stands nearby a giant seated figure whose head resembles a cartoonishly puffy, multicolored industrial robot arm at the end of which is a giant laptop, apparently the creature's face, an on-screen eye peering curiously at the man with whom it's apparently engaged in a nonverbal conversation. Another figure whose digital skin has been replaced with a glassy green texture seems to dance on the side of a white cube. Other figures dance in mid-air or traverse the sides of old shipping containers. A man peers, and probes a, uh, peers at and probes a glowing green orb, his hand going right through it. As he attempts to pick it up or otherwise interact with it, radio frequencies and static can be heard. He's eventually engulfed by the orb from which we see him emerge shortly afterward, his body now covered in its glowing texture. At the same time, the screen is partially obscured by a similar texture. Our vision, like his, is apparently infected. The green man cowers and tries to rid himself of the electric glow. 
Finally, we see a composite head with eight faces, alternating blue and pink, slowly rotating, bodies floating nearby, as the glitchy multicolored scan lines we saw earlier on the laptop now begin to cover the screen on which we are viewing the work. Computational sounds vaguely akin to the sound of a hard drive accessing data intensify and the screen turns briefly white before fading to black. Visual reason, it would seem, and intelligence itself await a recalibration with the new environmental transduction that ensues in our encounter with AI and the new conditions of unintelligibility. Thank you. Thank you so much, Shane. Let's give him another round of applause because that was just so <laughs> extremely rich. And there's, there's a, many directions I think we can go. But I thought that I would start by kind of picking up on this idea of unintelligibility that you brought up that I think so beautifully ties together two of the concepts that this event is formulated around, intelligence and dreams. Um, because... I think unintelligibility is something that requires access to the subconscious or the unconscious or an interface like AI that can, that can sort of suspend intention, basically. Uh, and it made me think about how consciously can you be unintelligible? I mean, is it possible to be consciously unintelligible in a genuine sense? Um, but anyway, I wanted to kind of talk about unintelligibility a little bit because, you know, I started, you know, when Raphael asked me to like um, open with a question or a thought, you know, what's been on my mind as I've been thinking about this theme is what do we mean when we say intelligence and how uh, often also culturally formed that idea is? And unintelligibility is certainly an idea that is uh, very much a cultural one too, right? So it's not just the lack of sense, it's also sometimes lack of understanding or lack of translation, lack of a shared language, you know, that um, lack of um, mutuality in a way. And so I was wondering if we could talk about a little bit about that, like when you say unintelligibility, what level of communication breakdown are you talking about? Are you talking about it in this like primal human sense? Are you talking about it in a semantic sense, in a cultural sense? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I don't know that I have like an intelligible answer, <laughs> at least not on all levels of it. I am trying to invoke multiple ones, right? But I am also conscious of sort of the, the pitfalls involved in that. Um, so I am, on the one hand, I'm trying to think about unintelligibility as something that is a necessary ground for intelligibility, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I don't think that that's a kind of neutral ground or, or one that's given in mm -hmm. any way, right? I do like connect it to our embodied kind of environmentality, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, even that is not a neutral kind of ground, right? It's one that's always um, inscribed and encoded in various forms of capture, right? Mm -hmm. And I am actually interested ultimately in these forms of capture, mm. right? Like what is it that's, that's, that's happening in 
the production of seemingly intelligible text, you know, the flood of intelligible text and images that we're increasingly getting, right? I think it's like tapping into something and capturing something about this ultimately not yet intelligible mm -hmm. ground of, say, embodied being, ways of being environmentally present and um, pre-perceptually, you know, subjectivized. Mm -hmm. So what I'm getting at is the way that these processes of um, of intelligibility are themselves uh, part of this capture of the, you know, and, and subjectivation of us, which includes all kinds of forms of more or less violent mm -hmm. categorizations according, you know, along lines of gender and race and, and things like that. So I, I am thinking along mm. these lines. I haven't really brought it out here, but it's it's a question that I that I'm thinking very deeply about. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there was this there's this line in your lecture where you describe that kind of flood of intelligible text as gray goo. I think you're quoting yeah, um, about Matthew, Matthew Kirschenbaum. Yeah. Um, and I found that very evocative, also the use of the word gray. Mm -hmm. And just kind of what I'm talking about is, um, you know, what, what, what you say when you, when you say like a flood of gray goo is not just talking about volume, but also a kind of uniformity, right? Like a kind of standardization. And I frankly don't know that much about how chat GPT works. I don't know how, um, but you know, Machine learning technologies rely on what's already out there. They rely on a corpus of data that has already been produced and captured, like you said. And so it makes me wonder um, if that means that this flood of text is reproducing what is made standard or like standardizing what is dominant, you know, so like... English speaking, Western ways of thinking and writing, that body of knowledge that is most dominant in the digital space, you know? Um, and I don't know if that's some, that comes into kind of this uh, rubric that you've presented of um, intelligence and glitches and unintelligibility. Mm -hmm. No, it absolutely does. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you can't really understand what's happening in these things without thinking about those those violences of categorization and normalization, mm -hmm. normativity, right, that are reinforced. Um, I guess, yeah, and especially in, in terms of text production, I think that's like the way that you have to understand it. Also with images, because they're they're all based on like textual, you know, labeling and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I but I am interested in something that happens along with it, and it's not like it's not something that resists that so much as actually enables that on a much more kind of insidious level, I guess, is what I'm trying to propose. Unint unintelligibility as enabling rather than resisting is what you're saying? Mm, I don't know. This whole like dialectic of intelligibility and unintelligibility, uh -huh. I think, is tapping into sort of the ground on which these norms can be inscribed directly into our bodies uh -huh. in a way, like not even just at a cognitive level, you know, not just at the level of the way that text presents itself and can be, you know, uh, intelligently decoded or something mm. like that but the way that these normative categories get inscribed directly into our flesh so i'm thinking of things like something as benign let's say as uh snapchat filters mm -hmm. right like you know you're like looking at yourself 
it's like this virtual mirror. Um, it puts like bunny ears on you or like a Nietzsche mustache or something like that. But so, I mean, you're interacting with this thing as this real time mirror, mm -hmm. which is operating through these AI processes that are based in all of these, well, you know, I mean, depending on what model is involved, but definitely these categorizations, mm -hmm. you know, this is what a face looks like. This is where the ears go. Right. All of these things are, you know, even more like, I guess, more, mm, I don't know, directly, you can think about like these de-aging filters or, mm -hmm. or gender swap. I mean, like all the normative categories that are invoked in that. But then, you know, playing, let's say, playing around with this, mm -hmm. there's this immediate feedback loop. Mm -hmm. I see myself through the schema, through the category that is inscribed right there. And I mean... Like, I actually see it. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like I'm just pretending. I mean, I am. I'm pretending I'm playing, but I still see it sort right. of apodictically, as the phenomenologists would say, right? Like, I can't doubt that this is what I see mm -hmm. and I see myself, right. right? So this is what I'm getting at about the way that those categories, which are all, yes, absolutely cognitive and discursive and whatnot, um, but the way that they can have an impact at a, at a much deeper sort of pre-subjective or non-conscious level, mm. which maybe takes us back to that earlier comment that you said about, you know, the subconscious and, and these kind of uncanny or uh, surreal experiences mm. that they tap into. So I'm curious um, whether this truly to you feels specific to post-cinematic, modes um you know i'm i i really loved what you said you, you know in this in this lecture about a kind of reciprocity a kind of uh being made by what we make this kind of um the example you showed is about ai and humans interpreting each other constantly this kind of mutuality and um i was thinking of this example um that i stumbled upon a few years ago when i was looking into the work of the colonial film unit um the uk's colonial film unit back when you know the british empire had these film units in various colonies that would do these educational films newsreel films blah 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 and there was a lot of kind of literature at the time circulated among those early british documentarians about form, like what does it mean to make films uh, in the colonies? And one of the, I think uh, this guy who ran a colonial film unit, maybe in Nigeria, I might be um, missing the precise uh, location, had this article that was published in a documentary magazine published by John Grierson, actually, uh, which is called something like How to Make Films for Africans. And it laid down these rules that were based on assumptions of intelligence, mm -hmm. right? So uh, one of the rules was don't do any vertical pans or the African mind will think that the building is collapsing. Don't have multiple figures moving in an image because the African mind can only focus on one thing at a time. You know, don't have a close up of a limb because they will think that it has been decapitated or something. Mm -hmm. And um, I, this made me, when I read that, and this is from the 40s, uh, it just made me think about how deeply contemporary film form, which uh, contemporary documentary form, which as we know, comes a lot from British, early British cinema and John Grierson, how much perhaps it is encoded with ideas about the intelligence of particular 
viewers and like what the vocation of filmmaking is and um, how we have been trained maybe by these movies to view faraway places, for example, you know, back when travel was not so easy and movies were a means of travel, how those these movies trained us in the practice of vision in a certain way, in the practice of recognition, uh, in the practice of machine vision. I mean, you know, all of that. And so I was just wondering, like, what you would, what lines you would draw from then to now? I mean, what has changed? What remains the same? What is specific to now that is different from everything that came with industrial modernity. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't. I definitely don't want to draw a kind of like sharp line between, say, the cinematic and the post-cinematic or something like this. Um, I do think that these tendencies are ongoing. Clearly, <laughs> um, you know, these apps and everything that we have now just continue a lot of these vocabularies, visual vocabularies, and and definitely sort of the, the tendencies that you're pointing to, right? Um, it's interesting, like when you think about it even farther back, I mean, like uh, Hugo Münsterberg writing about, you know, in, his, in this kind of Kantian vein, thinking about a grammar or a vocabulary of cinema where the close-up means attention, things like this, right? Mm -hmm. And so here he's thinking in a kind of universalizing, but obviously white way, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then you get these sort of differentiations that start happening. I mean, just kind of the racist impulses of that way of thinking start mm -hmm. to show themselves, I think, right? And I think, you know, none of that has changed. Like, I'm not, I'm not thinking that any of that has changed. Mm -hmm. I think if anything has changed, like I said, it's kind of the temporality, Right. So now these processes happen um, faster than we can think. Right. Um, so like me looking at my Snapchat, mm -hmm. I don't even have Snapchat, but whatever, you know, me looking at my Snapchat filter of myself, you know, it happens before I can even perceive myself. Mm -hmm right, before I can think about who I am, before I can gender myself or something like this, right? So um, I guess it's that anticipatory, that microtemporal, like before um, perception happens that I do, I mean, so again, yeah. that's not new either. That was already there in many ways, but it's like this really, really fine-grained operationalization that makes it so insidious, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, that does make sense, I think. But you, when you say that it is pr like pre-perceptive, you know, it, before you can gender yourself, it shows you an image of yourself. On an individual level, that's true. But is it pre-perceptive on like a human level? I don't know if that makes sense in the sense that everything it's producing is from the human corpus, right? I mean, human labor and knowledge has these technologies have not become autonomous of human labor and knowledge. So they are still reflecting back what we put into them, mm -hmm. maybe except when they glitch, mm -hmm. right? Like except in moments of glitching, they are still, so I, I, I am struggling to imagine a moment where I'm looking at a Snapchat filter or something and I'm seeing something that is outside of the realm of perception mm. for me. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to see anything that's outside the realm of perception, right? I, I or, or think cognition, you know. I yeah. Hmm. I I think we're talking about something very similar here. I think um, 
I mean, I'm thinking about the ways that that we are kind of categorized by the effects of past human labor and and mm -hmm. making, right? I'm thinking about the persistent kind of agency of making, but now its agency is so fine-grainedly operationalized. So I'm thinking about like, um, so Sartre in, in his late work where he turns from existentialism to Marxism mm -hmm. and tries to think about the way that, you know, um, the built environment exerts this agency on who we are and how we think about ourselves. And, you know, other people have picked that up, like Iris Marion Young, um, thinking about the way that the built environment, the worked, you know, the, all the objects that are around us that have sort of normed our experience, that they are crucial in providing the parameters of socially conventional gender norms, things like that. We're constituted by everything around us. Right. Yeah. So I guess what I'm pointing to or what I'm arguing is that that is still the case. But for Sartre, this is what he calls the practico inert, right? The human praxis and labor is stored in inert mm -hmm. form, physical form, whether that's the bus that we're waiting for or the microphone or whatever it is designed mm -hmm. stuff. But now, because this stuff can operate so quickly and sort of precede our ability to even like capture it perceptually, then it can sort of shape, you know, give like set a groove within which perception will take place in the immediate future, right? So for me, this is not a, not a break and it's definitely not something that is autonomous. It's not that like the machine is autonomous and whatever. That's kind of why I'm, I'm trying to pull back from the whole idea of intelligence mm -hmm. actually and point to intelligibility and unintelligibility, which still are fraught terms. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that fraught part of it is, is precisely the point, right? Because it is about these social networks that we're very much caught up in, even though like the people who make these machines want us to ignore that fact. Um, I want to talk a little more about labor and capture. I mean, both very big topics. But as we just discussed, you know, there is a, these technologies are still driven by human agency and labor. And so, when I'm thinking, when I'm thinking about the fears. AI provokes in me. I'm thinking about its displacement of human labor. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm thinking about surveillance and capture and the, how the predictive, the so-called predictive abilities of artificial intelligence uh, might be used, you know, by surveillance capitalism and, um, you know, to for racist means of policing, all of that. And in, in your talk, you talk about like art as being able to embody unintelligibility in this liberatory way. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering how unintelligibility might actually be a means of intervention in this kind of, in this material world of control we live in. And I don't know if art is that, but you know, for example, there are so many now, so many states across the world uh, opting for biometric identification, that sort of thing, and so many, so many movements to kind of work against that. But it does feel like it's the ship has sailed. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just wondering, like, what is a political unintelligibility for you? Like, what, what is the intervention? Because, for example, this, mm -hmm. the example that you shared with us is, is really thought-provoking, but I don't know if it feels outside of... Mm -hmm this relation that you've described, you know, it's, it's, yeah. to me, it's reinscribing 
that relation with images. So like, how is there an outside anymore? And like, how do we actually um, think about it from the point of view of power and reclaiming a certain kind of power of unintelligibility? Yeah. I, don't, I know that's a huge question, but. It is. Um, hmm. I don't know. I, uh, I try to be hopeful <laughs> that there is an outside. Right. And that maybe we can get access to some of it or tap into something of it, experience something of it that would have a kind of liberatory potential. I don't think that any of the artworks that I'm thinking about actually liberate you. They don't have that kind of, you know, determinative agency. Mm -hmm. I just think that they're like sort of opening up um, a place outside of uh, a, a sort of linear linear determination. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's it's true that they they still operate within these systems, and so to that extent, they're still you know um, incorporated within them. I don't I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, like half of my colleagues think that I'm overly optimistic, and the other half half thinks that I'm like completely pessimistic. You know, and they're About like what kind of precisely. Both, right? about whether there can be any kind of um, way out of that. I mean, I think that at the level that you're talking about, about like displacement of labor and things like that, yes, absolutely, there can be something that can be done, right? I mean, it's about collectivity. It's about, you know, um, just opposing these forces at a, at a very sort of concrete level, right? But I don't know that that solves, I mean, it certainly is about, the problems. I don't know if we can completely get out of the things that are kind of driving these problems right now. Right. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to be so pessimistic, but I guess what I'm I'm maybe getting at is can post cinematic art rescue us from a post cinematic world? Or you know, like can yeah, or or actually is is classical cinema that maybe now, you know, that kind of in some ways, now when we talk about film stock, we're talking about a resistance to, mm -hmm. to these modes of circulation and capture. So, I mean, I'm always careful not to um, sort of valorize, you know, analog film out of nostalgia. I mean, I, I always want to think about like the material and political place of these things that we're attached to. Um, but yeah, this just this just made me wonder. I mean, there is a lack of, let's say, transduction when, it, when you have an analog object. There is like the boundaries are not porous in a very particular way that you don't have with a digital object. So yeah, that's that's my question is, is the way forward through the objects that this status quo has given us? That's a great question and kind of an impossible one, you know. I mean... Well, um, I'm, you have... Uh, maybe you can do it in um, 280 characters. Okay, we out of time? <laughs> well, so, no, no, no. That's the Twitter. Yeah, no, I know. Okay, yeah, sorry. It used to be 140, but yeah, I'm old. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, like... I have this, it started as a joke, but now I think it's actually real, um, that I have a book that I'm going to write, you know, after I've written so many books about so-called post-cinema, mm -hmm. and it's going to be called Cinema After All. But in any case, um, I think that... Cinema comma after all? Or I'm not no sure comma? yet. I'm not sure about the okay. punctuation yet. <laughs> it's, it's after all. But um, 
But I guess what I'm thinking about, or let me put it another way, um, whether post-cinematic media can sort of disrupt these structures that I'm describing as sort of inherent to post-cinema, I don't really know. But I'm, I've been, so I experimented with um, a group of colleagues when I was a postdoc at Duke, um, and I've kind of continued this later. We were experimenting with EEG devices mm -hmm. that um, were like, you know, we sort of plug them into, you know, whatever, video playback software to modulate the playback in real time. And what we're thinking about there is, and again, I'm thinking of Hugo Münsterberg, thinking about attention as the close-up, mm -hmm. the external, you know, correlative of attention, things like that. Um, we started thinking about the ways that attention had been constructed in these apparatuses, both in the cinema and in post-cinematic apparatuses like this EEG device, which comes like ready to use. You plug it in and it'll measure, you know, it'll measure raw brain waves, but it also packages according to a proprietary algorithm what it labels as meditation and attention, right? They're marketed to like kids with ADHD and things mm -hmm. like that, right? So there's all this normativity and ableism inscribed in it. And we wanted to like think about, is there a way that we can use this that would point beyond this kind of violence that is actually being enacted by these machines? And what we started doing is you know, recognizing the sort of pseudo-scientific basis of like saying this is what attention is, it's a particular proportion of different brain waves, whatever, we were like, okay, well, let's take that attention and let's put a couple of people, you know, I mean, a, an audience, of a collective audience of people wearing, wearing these EEG devices um, and so that their so-called attention gets aggregated and averaged and it it shows up on the screen as you know a zoom like a, a close-up mm -hmm. right so that you get this visual feedback of what your so-called attention is doing but you're involved in a collective activity like an activity of like what Hito Steyl was talking about this morning as a, a kind of socialization of attention which is all about like struggling with the the um the way that attention has been both like, you know, uh, defined and categorized. And this is something though that happens at a kind of pre-personal level. You're not in charge of that so-called attention. As much as I want to pay attention, it's not like doing what I want. And even more so when I'm in a collective audience and we start looking at each other, who's not paying attention? Comrade, pull your weight, pay attention. You know, I mean, it's like, um, I don't know. I, I think that what that kind of experiment does, it doesn't liberate us, but it does show us sort of the necessary collective dimensions of getting out of this mess in a way, if I can say it that way. Like, it's not going to solve the problems that you're pointing to, mm. right? But it will, I think, give us a, a, a way of understanding how we have been targeted and captured and normativized and, you know, abled and disabled and things like that. Um, I'm, I, I'm told we're almost out of time and um, I wanted to make sure to touch upon one other thing that came up in your talk and that you've written about in your work, which is the idea of catastrophe and extinction as it relates to um, the images and basically the the content, if I may call it that, created by these kinds of technologies. And this decentering of the human that seems to almost invite a world in which 
humans don't exist. And I was wondering if you could talk a little more about that. Um, and, you know, while I was reading that, I was thinking of this film that I saw recently called Last Things by Deborah Stratman, who is an American experimental filmmaker. And um, she plays a lot with human and non-human perception in her films. And this film is sort of point from the point of view of rocks. Of course, no film made by a human can be <laughs> from the point of view of anyone else. But it's sort of um, drawing upon these early proto-science fiction French novels in which um, alien were, aliens were inorganic beings. So it's an idea of prehistory as a dystopia or even, you know, of the future. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which rocks are repositories of history, you know, they tell the story of time. And it just made me think about this idea of decentering the human as something dystopic, but also something originary. Mm -hmm. And the way in which this film uses it, it is not, it didn't feel to me like it was talking about extinction. It was talking about the idea that like human death is not the extinction of the planet. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's much more uh, to this world than us. And so I was just wondering if you could get at that a little bit, you know, what do you mean when you talk about extinction and the human perspective and how these technologies are intervening in that? Yeah, it's, um, it's a little bit complicated. I guess what I would want to first say is that when I appeal to something beyond the human perspective, it's not necessarily because it's liberating. I don't necessarily think that at all. Like I don't agree with a lot of like affect theory and new materialism and stuff like that. Um, I think that that abdicates a lot of political agency that shouldn't be abdicated. Um, what I'm interested in is the way that the sort of bypassing of, of subjectivity and of subjective perception by computational um, operations, the way that that, I don't know, it's again, it's not a utopian gesture, but it undoes something about like individualism. Mm -hmm. Right. It undoes some kind of basis of normativized individualism, which I do take to be at the root of a lot of our environmental problems. Right. But I'm not saying that from the perspective of, again, let's liberate the affects mm -hmm. or whatever. What I'm actually saying is that this kind of liberation of the affects provides a perfect target for capitalism, right? So we're, we don't get out of this kind of dialectics just by imagining these scenarios. I do think that these scenarios, into the world scenarios, extinction scenarios, et cetera, serve a purpose and, and maybe even like an allegorical purpose in like Frederick Jameson's sense, you know, of imagining like um, something um, some kind of breakdown of the system and some kind of persistence as well. So in other words, there's like a way in which these systems that, that show something about the bypassing of subjectivity and therefore the breakdown of individualism force us to come to terms with um, a kind of broader sense of, of ethical and political agency, I think. But again, it's n neither like celebratory nor like elegiac or something, because I think we just... It's confrontational. I mean, it, it brings us, mm -hmm. it asks us to confront yeah. this world, which which could be, you know, what we want it to be, but 
you know, like it confronts us with the idea of an outcome that agency, human and political agency could intervene in. Yeah. 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 I think it, it confronts us with like the real or the reality of contingency, you know, simply the fact that things could be otherwise. Right. <laughs> and maybe they should be. I feel like that's a great note to end on. Uh, thank you so much, Shane. That was just really thought-provoking and rich and I think starts off the long night uh, on a very good note. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.